Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles tough things. Lately, we've been tackling courts a lot, and that seems pretty pretty reasonable considering that the court system is kind of screwed up, especially when it comes to family court. And I have a guest here who can help us talk about things that are happening in the courts and what we can do about it. Christy Karkaden, did I say your name right? Welcome. Yes, you did. Welcome to the show. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. I went I ran across your your name in an article from the Walnut Creek, California newspaper, and it was an article about uh, entitled "Our Court System: The New American Ghetto." You're quoted in that. What what does that mean? The New American Ghetto. So most often, when people are, especially parents, but other also other members of the community, um, go to the court system sort of as a as a place of last resort to find a solution. Most parents or families, others utilizing the court system are anticipating a concept of justice or at least uh, what they would consider an equitable solution. They also, um, they also believe that they're going to have their issues tried fairly um, in accordance with the law, the rules of evidence, um, family codes, sections such as we have in California that are supposed to govern the way that family court proceedings are um, are happening, and we uh, many lit- litigants and families, parents expect that their issues will be tried according to rule of law. And um, especially here in California and in the Bay Area, it's more often than not that those things don't happen, and um, issues are um, are not tried according to the law. Hearings and trials or uh, other legal matters occur are heard in the courtroom before judges off record um, in a number of cases. Um, there's what are called California rules of court that also dictate per the, uh, per the court itself how the, the proceedings are supposed to occur. And oddly enough, even the California rules of court in many instances are not followed. Um, so what essentially... That's really, that's really interesting. And we hear that a lot from courts all over the country. I recently learned more about this not of record. I always thought that if you went to court, there's a stenographer or a court reporter there and things, uh, records are kept. But that's not always the case. And when there's no record that's being kept, when it's a court of not, no record, um, really, how do you keep track of what things happen there, especially if there's been mistakes or some egregious behavior, you know, this, this not having the rules be the same as in other courts is kind of staggering to those of us who don't go into court every day and experience it. Why is that? Um, well, several things happen when there's no record of a proceeding. Um, first of all, the, the court itself is considered an incompetent jurisdiction. Um, further, that litigants are not able to appeal their their issues. So when a decision is made, and litigants on either side may or may or may decide that they want to appeal it, take it to the appellate court, um, which is a higher court to have the ruling looked at again, they are not able to do so. So um, litigants because who you have, have their have that transcript. you have to have the transcript in order to make the appeal. So you have to. You have to go into court assuming that the the judge is going to do something wrong and hire your own transcriptionist, your own recorder, uh, uh, reporter for the court, which is thousands and thousands of dollars. 
I don't think a lot of people realize that. And if you go in assuming that there's going to be a just decision and that things are going to be nice and, and the way just, you know, and then you're gobsmacked by the fact that they're not, you don't have a recourse if you don't have a record of it. You can't do anything about it. Why did family courts become so sheltered like that? A number of years ago, yeah, so a number of years ago, I believe um, what had happened is that in in specific state courts, um, for example, in the Contra Costa Superior Court, they stopped making court reporters for civil proceedings mandatory, meaning that, as you said, if you wanted to have a transcript of your proceeding, you needed to hire your own court reporter and bring them into your civil proceeding. And even above and beyond that, there are litigants who did attempt to do that in the Contra Costa Superior Court and then would have the judge tell the litigant and their court reporter that the court reporter needed to leave the courtroom as the judge, um, him or herself, did not want a record of the proceeding. So that, and I've heard of people who just try to record the proceedings being told they can't do that. But I thought courts were open to the public. I thought anybody could go in, and unless there were some special circumstances where the judge says, no, we're going to keep this private, that anybody could, I mean, you and I could walk in off the street and just sit down and watch what's going on in a court. If we can do that, why can't we record it? Why is there this, this problem about having a record of what happens there? Well, it's funny you should say that because um, in the last year or so, there has been huge uproar from the courts themselves about people coming into um, public proceedings and observing, and more importantly, um, courts in Northern California, such as the Contra Costa Superior Court and the Santa Clara Superior Court, have been very adamant that they do not want members of the public coming into court facilities, being a courtroom or even just the main areas in the court and recording, taking photographs. They do not want any sort of um, record, shall we say, maintained um, by the public about what is going on in these proceedings. Um, I will say to the credit of the California court system that as of, I believe, July 23rd of this year, a, a Supreme Court ruling was issued that mandated that court reporters um, in civil proceedings, I believe perhaps other proceedings must be um, mandatory now for indigent litigants who request them from what I understand. Um, Again, that's a a very recent Supreme Court ruling um, in California, but does not change the- State Supreme Court? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah, Um, because the show goes national, and so there are courts, you know, I I know myself, I've worked with a few people who have been litigants in family court in Kentucky or Virginia, and oh my gosh, I mean, it's astounding to me how secretive those proceedings are, and I'm not an attorney, but I always thought that that was a constitutional thing, that anybody had the right, but I could be wrong on that, Um, but I thought that courts were supposed to operate in the open. Civil proceedings, including family court, are um, supposed to be public if there is, for example, a divorce case in family court. However, if the parties were not married and there is a custody issue, then those are closed cases called CP or closed parentage cases and are not open to the public. 
also add to that that CPS or juvenile court proceedings um, or dependency court proceedings are also not public. So if you are not a party to the action and are not involved in the case and you enter a CPS or juvenile court, you will be asked to leave because it is a confidential proceeding. So those proceedings are most definitely not open to the public. Wow. Wow. I, I think that for all those of us who aren't involved in this kind of, you know, this court action, there are some assumptions that we all make. One is, you've already talked about, we assume that if you go to court, you're going there for justice. But that's kind of beside the point in courts, isn't right. it? Right. You're so, everything. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, most. Yeah. Most. So most. Most members of the public do operate under the assumption that there's going to be an equitable resolution or fair, fair outcome for one or both of the parties. And in most cases, I would actually say both parties will walk away not getting the result that either of them wanted. I think. It's also very important to understand that these courts are operating in such a way that they are wanting to maximize the amount of federal funding that they can receive into the state court system. So their operations are are based upon how much um, additional assistance they can get from the federal government if they operate a certain way, make rulings um, a certain way. There's different types of federal funding that the state court system received and there's also certain um, laws that they may have to adhere, well, they are supposed to adhere to, such as Americans with Disabilities Act, that I believe will um, cost them money. So in those cases where there's a debit to their books, a lot of times these courts are simply not motivated to comply with federal laws, even though compliance with federal laws is mandatory for receiving any type of federal funding. It's interesting that you mentioned the ADA because I actually work with a few people um, as a, uh, an assistant, uh, as an advocate for their ADA accommodations in the court systems. And I actually um, just have had a situation in, I believe it was, it was either Pennsylvania or Virginia, where the person had a documented cognitive processing disorder, which means that they can't just sit in court and understand what's going on. They have to see it. And so I went to the court to request accommodation for this learning disability. And one of the accommodations was to have either an, an audio transcript or a, a DVD or, you know, written transcripts of what occurred. You would have thought I was asking them to construct a new rocket ship to the moon from scratch. And I kept saying, but this is a reasonable accommodation. If her brain doesn't work in the way that she understands what's happened to her in the courts, then it's reasonable to assume that the courts have to accommodate her learning disability. And finally, I got them to admit that, that, um, that there could be transcripts, but they wanted her to pay for them. And I said, no, this is an ADA accommodation. And they said, but this, these are expensive. And I said, well, that's the same thing as saying to the person in the wheelchair, we're going to charge you $95.99 because the ramp cost us a lot to build. And they were just, I, I mean, I just can't understand that concept. So I was very interested to hear you talking about the ADA accommodations. This apparently is something that's more common than, than I thought when I encountered it. Is that what you're telling me? Uh, that's definitely true. And the the oversight, from what I understand, of the Americans with Disabilities Act 
over the court system is supposed to be by the United States Department of Justice and as many who have researched compliance of the US DOJ um, have found that they do not appear to strictly or in some cases at all enforce um, ADA compliance in the court system in spite of the fact that it is federal law. Exactly. Well, and I had one court clerk tell me um, she was supposedly also wore the hat as the ADA coordinator for that court that she's worked there for 20 years and she's never once had a request for accommodations for a disability. And I went, wow, I, I think then that maybe people just aren't asking for those accommodations because you can't tell me that in 20 years nobody has walked through your doors who requires some sort of a disability accommodation. And that was her take on it, that there just wasn't the need out there because she hadn't been asked. And interesting, that's interesting. I'm diverging a little bit because of that interest that I have in the ADA accommodation. But let's get back, you know, to what happens in the courts. You know, this, this, this secrecy kind of really bothers me. And that leads, I would assume, to some pretty egregious outcomes for litigants. The public's perception of how the court system operates and how judges will unilaterally, um, automatically apply rule of law uh, is just not accurate to what's actually going on in the court system. And it is, um, I think, one of the, the public facilities that the public automatically places the most confidence in and relies on heavily to operate um, exactly according to written, written rule and procedure and across a number of states, particularly in California, which is the court system that I was looking at, it is not happening. Well, and we're seeing more and more studies that indicate that um, there's some pretty serious stuff going on in these family courts. And yet we're told that there is judicial oversight. We're told that there is the judicial review committee or whatever it's called in each state that people can go to if the if a if a judge because I'm I'm I have greatest respect for judges I really do, and I'm sure that most of them are absolutely fair and unbiased, but they are human beings and we tend to carry our biases and our mistaking judgments and all that other stuff with us as human beings, and yet, is there really any oversight of judges? I mean, if there's no record, how can there be oversight? In California, the Oversight Committee for the California Court System is, uh, is called the Commission on Judicial Performance, otherwise known as the CJP, and there has been no audit of the CJP um, in, its entire, uh, um, in the entire life of the agency, which I believe is over 56 or 57 years. And um, in, the, in the last couple of years, there are several... Um, citizens as well as lawmakers who requested that there be an audit of the CJP and that the complaints, the records be looked at because approximate statistics for disciplinary action occur for about one in every about 1,000 complaints. Um, there may be some sort of finding of misconduct. Um, and those who have utilized um, or attempted to utilize the complaint process of the CJP have discovered that there may, may be egregious acts of misconduct committed by a judge um, 
uh, failure to apply rule of law, misconduct, um, lack of adherence, adherence to their oath of office or judicial canons, and there will be um, absolutely no finding of misconduct. There would just be, you know, a letter sent out to the complainant that their complaint was looked at and it was closed. So I believe that there is a committee in the CJP that will look at the complaint. Um, a big problem implicit in a in a um, system where there's no oversight, no auditing, is is the high level of cronyism. Um, the the rampant um, nepotism and cronyism that um, is not necessarily widely discussed in media or um, you know widely talked about within you know the public arena, but that it is well known to those of who who are either you know working in the system, who are embedded within the system, or have you know spoken to those who are embedded within the system, and judges you know will for example, work in the Superior Court, then graduate to the Appellate Court as an Appellate Court Justice. Um, a lot of the same players are, are kind of recycled, some from um, between generations, you know, the same families, different generations. Um, and then there's also a lot of, I, I would say, aside from cronyism and favoritism, there's um, favoritism or preferences within the legal system for uh, favoring big businesses and, you know, insurance companies, for example, is pretty common. Um, there was a pretty important case that, case law that came out over the last couple of years. It was um, Hayward versus Superior Court. And what this case uh, determined was that if there are undisclosed conflicts of interest between experts in a case that would obviously taint the outcome of the case or um, change the way people in the case would decide or buy or pr actually promote bias that that um, those rulings would essentially be void that no ruling where there's undisclosed conflicts of interest um, would would necessarily stick so that's really important case law and then of course you kind of circle back to the same problem of what good is it having case law, what good is it having um, laws, recent laws, old laws, how how valuable are laws if they're not followed in the court system well, by the judges who are tasked to do so? Well, you know, the, what you're describing is a system that requires oversight and requires, um, op you know, more of an open-air approach. I think that I remember, and of course I'm older than dirt, but I remember when doctors were had the same a similar kind of, of procedure. If a patient had a complaint about a doctor's behavior or or um, professionalism or whatever the doctor did, they had to go to basically a, a a group of other doctors to oversee who would review it. And somewhere about 25 years ago, everybody went what. <laughs> How could this be fair? And we don't have that so much anymore. Um, but it sounds like that's exactly the kind of system that we're looking at with the courts, where, um, okay, I can go play golf with Joe, and then, oh, by the way, if I have somebody, a litigant who's thinking that I'm doing something wrong, guess who gets to hear the complaint? Good old Joe, you know. Uh, I don't understand how that system isn't I, – I don't understand why I'm not seeing – 
article after article and, and, you know, outrage over that kind of a system when it comes to our family courts. An attorney recently um, told me probably in the course of the last week that there's a nickname for one of the state um, state courts, the, the Los Angeles state courts were are jokingly referred to or actually probably seriously referred to by attorneys as the bank. So what does that tell you? Wow. There's there's a lot of money in it for all of the people who are working in it, and there is a very, very high level of interest in those players protecting the money that they're making. Wow. And who's watching that bank? Who, you know, where's the accountability? That's what I'm seeing missing. So you, um, you're, you're trying to do something about this. Tell us more about what it is that you're trying to do and how. There are a number of citizens who have filed um, recalls on local judges in Contra Costa Superior Court. These judges are being recalled because they have repeatedly failed to apply rule of law. They have preferred to act in the interests of the people within the system um, within the interests of um, money, uh, of how to gain, fin- um, maximize the inflow of federal funding into the state court system and into the Contra Costa Superior Court. And there are there is a high level of interest in cases that involve children, uh, especially mothers, because um, mothers and fathers who, who care for their children will go to the ends of the earth to... Um, ensure that their children um, remain at home with them and remain safe. So parents are oftentimes misled in the proceedings by um, by judges who are, you know, failing to apply rule of law, who will protract proceedings, who are not adhering to protocol, and who will do things in the interest of the court and in the interest of the judges and all of the attorneys, experts, minors counsel, and those who have a financial interest in lengthening the case, um, requesting or requiring that there are additional services ordered. And, and in fact, in Contra Costa County, there was, um, there was a law passed a number of years ago that um, was written by, by the court CEO at the time, Stephen Nash, who wanted to, or I, I suppose was interested in promoting that their uh, interagency billing between providers in the county. So essentially, if you were to go into a court case or be involved in any sort of litigation, you would be given a list of um, court-appointed or court-connected therapists or experts or specialists, and the court would then require or demand or ask that you choose from the list of their preferred providers. Mm-hmm. Regardless of what training or what credentials those providers have, I'm assuming they're all licensed and that's that. Well, it's funny you should say that because some of those providers and their credentials were not properly represented on the list. For example, you might have a uh, a, a psychologist who has a certain amount of training who is represented as having a higher amount of training than what he or she actually has. The list was not accurate. Um, There's also other qualifications that they're required to have if they're supposed to perform certain types of services and there's certain forms 
according to California rules of court that these experts are supposed to comply with. And in most cases, they're not, they're not following those rules. They're not disclosing what their qualifications are, and they're not, they're not confirming that they have the necessary education and training to provide the services that they're providing. I've spoken with a number of, of psychologists who work for the courts, forensic psychologists, and sometimes I'm kind of gobsmacked by how um, how their opinions and beliefs seem to be based not on the most current research and, and information. I know that a lot of fields require continuing education. Um, psychology does. But do the courts um, have to abide by that? Do they have to? I don't. I, it just seems to me that when you have bodies of research that overwhelmingly say this is happening or this needs to happen, and yet you still have professionals who are working for the courts who don't don't buy that. That's true. And in going back to the zero accountability and lack of oversight problem, there is uh, no oversight of of these experts from what I can tell. And I know there are complaints that have been made to the court regarding the individuals on the list, the experts, the psychologists. And a lot of times people don't have their complaints addressed. There's a lack of a, a two-way dialogue. There's a lack of information provided back. And because of the, the lack of oversight of not only the uh, court-connected workers, the experts, the preferred providers, shall we say, whether they be attorneys, psychologists, minors counsel. There's also a, as we, as we discussed, there's a complete lack of oversight of the judiciary. And due to that, there have been several, um, several efforts within California to recall judges. The recall is necessary when there is zero oversight of the judges and the workers in the court system. The recall of judges is the last um, available option for the people to ensure that they receive, um, that they place um, successors, that they place judges in the off into those um, into those positions that will perform according to the law, according to the California rules of court and applicable laws. Now I know in some states judges are state judges are appointed and in some states they are elected. What is the recall process? Why is you know how does that work? And is it different whether the judge is elected or appointed? As far as I can tell, the judges in the superior court have been appointed by the governor of California for a number of years, going back as far as I can remember. Uh, in the past, it may have been different. Um, today, the judges that that are um, currently on the bench of the Superior Court are appointed judges. They're appointed by the governor. They're appointed by the current, or have been appointed by the current governor, Jerry Brown, or the previous governors to him. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I'm, I, and I, as I said, I know in a lot of states they are, um, but you mentioned Superior Court. We're not just talking Superior Court judges, are we, that are uh, vulnerable to recalls? We're talking about judges or um, just regular old county family court judges. Uh, all judges can be recalled. Is that right? I'm not really sure about this. But speaking mm -hmm. to the recall mm -hmm. effort, that there is, there has been a successful recall in the state of California of 
Judge Aaron Persky, who was um, removed from the, the bench this year when he was voted out of office, I believe it was June, there was a recall of Judge Aaron Persky in the Santa Clara Superior Court. Um, the chief complaint that was voiced by the recall team and the supporters and those who elected to vote out Judge Aaron Persky was that he gave um, a fairly light sentence to a, a Stanford swimmer who had committed a mm -hmm. rape and sexual assault against a student um, at a party. And what's a little bit interesting and was kind of an untold story about Judge Aaron Persky that a number of some, some people have voiced is that um, Judge Aaron Persky had also worked in the family court and he had repeatedly, I suppose as a pattern and from what I've been told, given custody of, of children to unsafe parents, parents who had been charged with a violent crime, who had committed a violent crime against the child or their, their partner, their former partner, um, parents who were not safe parents. And that's a pretty common theme that we do see in the court mm -hmm. system today. Yeah, yeah, we see that all over the country. Um, in the case of his recall, can you tell me what happened with that? Who, who initiated the recall? Who can initiate a recall? And what happened in Judge Persky's case? The chair of the Judge Aaron Persky recall was a Stanford law professor, Michelle Dauber, and she successfully chaired and led the recall campaign of Judge Aaron Persky. Um, Judge Aaron Persky had given uh, what was considered by many to be an incredibly light criminal sentence to uh, a Stanford swimmer who had committed a sexual assault and rape against a fellow student when she was um, unconscious, uh, I believe passed out at a party on campus, from what I understand, on or around campus. And that made national news. That was that was all over the all over the board um, um, when it happened. So it was quite a notorious situation. So that's because right. Because of that, yeah. So because of that, then uh, the recall effort was started by the Stanford professor. Yes, it was. A, I believe it was a Stanford um, professor and a number of uh, volunteers who led the all volunteer recall campaign of Judge Aaron Persky from the Superior Court bench. This was down in Silicon Valley, um, right near the Stanford, the Stanford campus in Palo Alto, California. Okay. Okay. So, how long did that take? How who, you know, who somebody somebody decided to pick up the the reins and and start going for a recall. But most people wouldn't be thinking, first of all, that they could that that would be something that they could do. Um, can you tell me the process that, that people went through to do this? I mean, obviously, a Stanford professor would probably know the, pro the procedure. Um, is this something where only specialized people can ask for a recall, or is this something where anyone can educate themselves and initiate a request for a recall? Any citizen can educate themselves and request a recall if they follow the steps that are required by their local elections office. Okay. The Stanford, um, in, the, in the case of the Stanford um, rape case or the recall of Judge Aaron Persky, um, the, the Stanford law professor felt very strongly about this issue and from, 
from what it seems like, there's approximately a 40% rate of uh, sexual assault on campus. Um, is it about 40% of you know women are sexually assaulted on the Stanford campus? Which, in an era where we yeah. tend to think that that this type of a crime is is much more closely monitored or is is not happening at such a high rate, that that seems to be um, it seems to be extreme. But it, from yeah, all the research that's been done, that's yeah, staggering. Yeah, forty percent. Yikes! Right. Yikes. Um, okay. So this professor, um, I, I'm assuming, not alone, but that there were a number of people who uh, assisted her or who signed on to the complaint, decided that they were going to go for a recall. We don't often hear about judges being recalled. And when we do, we think of it as something horrible and egregious and whatever. And to be quite honest and blunt, I'm... I'm not sure that there are that many people who think that a light sentence for sexual assault is, is necessarily as egregious as some other things. Um, so how did this movement to recall Judge Persky start, and, and what was kind of the trajectory of it? Well, I think, I think a lot of people, members of the public, people in, within California, um, people outside of California expect California to be um, a pro progressive place where there's supposed to be oversight and monitoring of um, not only the criminal justice system, the court system in general. We would not expect that in a place that is supposedly progressive like California, we would not expect, I, guess, I suppose, to be seeing such a light sen sentence given to a, um, somebody who perpetrated a sexual assault um, it was a little known fact to the public, I believe, until there was a great deal of um, publicity about the recall, I'm sorry, about the um, lack of oversight by the Commission on Judicial Performance until citizens had called for an audit. There was one person in particular who had researched the CJP very heavily and had learned that there had never been an audit of the CJP in around um, 56 years the entire time that the agency has been in operation, that there had never, ever been any sort of investigation into the type of oversight and monitoring that the CJP was doing. So this led um, several, several citizens and several lawmakers to request the audit of the Commission on Judicial Performance in order to understand exactly what function was this um, oversight committee serving. How were they operating? What were they doing with their records? What did the records show? And why were so many citizens finding that when they submitted complaints to the CJP that there was absolutely no disciplinary action taken, no investigation, um, and that their complaints were simply closed? So I think that once, once um, the public became aware that there had been never been an audit on the CJP, there was strict scrutiny being placed on the audit that was demanded. Um, the CJP then sued the state auditor over the audit in order to stop it. That in and of itself is suspicious. Why would an agency sue the state auditor who is seeking to try to audit the, the public agency? This litigation yeah, lasted... It doesn't look very good, does it? <laughs> exactly. You know, from, from... Yeah, from the outside, that just doesn't look good, you know? Right. So what this eventually led to is 
some litigation between the CJP suing the auditor and the auditor being able to gain access to some of the records of the Commission on Judicial Performance. Now, that will obviously take some time, and as anybody who has ever observed a lawsuit go on, it is incredibly slow, does not move quickly, and progress and rapid change generally never never comes about until a long lawsuit or a legal proceeding is is completed and the yeah. and the subsequent or the the aftermath the case case decision or the findings are then reviewed and understood and published there's generally very little effect until the lawsuit is concluded and things are allowed to move forward from there okay all right so the recall of Judge Percy was successful. Are recall efforts routinely successful, or is that kind of a, an anomaly um, that it actually worked for this particular judge? Judge recalls are incredibly difficult in California. Um, one, because the number of signatures that are um, required for the measure to be placed on the ballot to vote the judge out of office especially in the case of the Judge Persky recall, I think they required somewhere, I want to say around 100,000 signatures or so. And without having um, both the number of volunteers as well as the financial backing, it can be incredibly difficult to recall a judge. And in the case of Judge Aaron Persky, there is typically what also happens is a an anti-recall effort that is brought about by the judge and his support, his or her supporters. Um, there was a anti-Judge Aaron Persky recall committee camp slash campaign that was formed, and it sought to advertise as to why the recall for Judge Aaron Persky should not happen. Of course, it was not successful, and that recall was successful and managed to not only get the initiative on the ballot to vote Judge Aaron Persky out of out of office, but um, also to get the votes needed to have the voters agree that Judge Aaron Persky needed to be removed from the bench. Mm. And I, I'm sure that effort was helped by, and fueled by the publicity about his sentencing uh, for the sexual assault. But oftentimes, Kind of these kind of egregious judicial decisions are made in the dark. You know, we're kind of coming full circle um, where people don't know about them except the parties that are affected. I would assume that any effort for a recall where there hasn't been this terrific um, public um, publicity, it's kind of like sad to think that people would even try to have a recall if they don't have that kind of public um, understanding of what happened. That's very true, and I think that, by and large, the public and myself, I would say, we do want to tend to believe that judges are going to do the right thing, that they are going to apply the law, that they are going to follow the rules that they're required to follow, and I would say that there is a general belief amongst um, the public, amongst the voters of the state of California, that um, judges are an authority and will will do the right thing will apply the law equitably. Of course, the right thing can always be a bit subjective. We, we do understand, I think many people do understand that there will usually be, you know, an unhappy party or an outcome that somebody's not, somebody somewhere is not happy with. 
I think what we see now mm-hmm. a days in California, as I mentioned earlier, is that both people will leave the court and neither will be satisfied. And especially in the case of family law, most families are really, as well as members of the public, are not aware of the fact that the, the courts are simply operating not so much in a way where they, they're, that the judges are hoping to, or the, ju- the courts are not giving off the appearance based upon the way judges are ruling, that they're interested in, in equitably or f- equally applying rule of law, but are actually more geared towards um, attaining some sort of financial objective for the court itself. Yeah, you talk about that in your article, um, Follow the Money. How often is evidence and rule of law ignored in favor of funding and financial motive? Did you find that this is a huge issue um, in the family courts? By studying a, a good sample size of cases, it is pretty easy to see these trends. And then there's also another factor that relates to money that is even less talked about and is even more difficult to understand and see, which is judicial bribery. There are cases where judges are accepting bribes. There are people who have admitted you know, in, within court facilities that they have successfully bribed judges. They've walked out of the courtroom and stated, you know, that they have been able to get the decision that they wanted because of a, a financial kickback being given to a judge. And that is something that happens. And that is um, usually more difficult to detect because the bribe money is not, shall we say, um, typically not written, you know, like in the form of a personal check, I would imagine. I mean, I don't know because I've never, I've never given a, a a bribe to a judge, but there, this topic has been researched by investigative journalists and others, and there are ways that um, the investigative journalists and others have determined that bribe money is being um, distributed or, or laundered. Some ways are through the bar associations, others are through um, judges taking out home equity lines of credit and then having it repaid using cash or or other bribe money, and um, hmm. those are some of the most co- common ways that ju- judges are taking bribes, and those will usually determine a case. If, there, if it's a family law case, it will decide it usually for the life of the case, um, you know, all 18 years of the minor child's life. How is the, this kind of um, uh, financial gain uh, reflected in the uh, Health and Human Services um, different programs that they have? Well, Health and Human Services has a, a, an initiative called the Healthy Marriage and Responsible Fatherhood Funding. It may be named differently or be shown on, on court books and other records as named something different. The Fatherhood Initiative is one way that it's referred to. And by the name alone, people might tend to believe, oh, well, this is something that would be very supportive of, you know, having good fathers in the home. And there is definitely marketing. Mm-hmm. There's definitely propaganda that surrounds these initiatives and a lot of misnomers being given to families, being given to the public about what these initiatives do. So most people would hear that and say, yes, I'm all in favor of, of good dads. Dads need to be involved. I think we can all agree dads should be involved in their kids' lives. Well, actually, the Healthy Marriage and Responsible Fatherhood funding is actually what it's done is most a lot of it is paid into the Office of Child Support Enforcement and 
provides sort of forgiveness or um, less enforcement of re related to things such as child support will, in some cases, will fund nonprofits and other sort of services so that maybe fathers who ordinarily wouldn't have sought custody or would not have engaged in a long drawn out custody battle with their former spouse were then incentivized to lower or even eliminate their child support payments and they would do so using attorneys that were given to them through this initiative and the funding that it provides. Oh, hey, I'm good. You know, I've heard about this, and I, to tell you the truth, have been lax in, in trying to understand it. But what you're telling me is that the uh, Fatherhood Initiative, for lack of, uh, you know, the full, full title here, helps fathers by providing attorneys? Yes, most of the women who are fighting for custody of their children are going pro se. They're lucky if they have an attorney. I mean, study after study shows that, you know, the fathers tend to have more resources going into these, these battles than the mother does. And so you're telling me that some of those resources are the result of federal funding? Wow. I'm, yes, I'm and, and that's, that's not necessarily usually through the court itself, but there are local nonprofits um, such as, nonprofits here in California that receive this federal funding that are providing these types of services. Yes. Wow. And and yet there's nothing comparable for responsible mothers. Definitely not. There is no such equivalent funding for mothers. Wow. Wow. Okay. Um okay, I'm uh, you know, another one where just wow, you know, that that uh, astounds me. Um I'm looking at our clock and I'm going, "Holy cow, how can we be so close to the end? Uh, we've barely touched the surface of this issue." I wanted to ask you about Judge Jill Fannin. What's going on with that situation? Judge Jill Fannin is being recalled by uh, a local committee who has filed notices of intent to recall her and is circulating the committee is circulating petitions throughout the county to gain signatures of registered voters in order to place the initiative on the ballot and have Judge Jill Fannin voted out of office. Why? Judge Jill Fannin has repeatedly held proceedings off record. There are a number of court hearings that she's held where there are no records, there's no transcripts, there's um, no audio recording, although there are some litigants who have um, caught her saying that there will be no record of this proceeding in one case. And there are also other issues such as um, holding children's Medi-Cal benefits in Contra Costa County when the children no longer reside in Contra Costa County in order to increase federal funding into Contra Costa County. And there are cases that have linked Judge Jill Fannin to doing these things, it's essentially committing federal funding fraud for the purposes of enriching the book, um, enriching the, the Contra Costa County and the Superior Court. Wow. When we started our conversation, I, I took a few notes and the things that, that seem um, most egregious about um, the court system is the fact that there's no record, that it's not open. Um, when most of us assume that it's open, most of us assume that there are records. 
unless you're involved with this, you're, I think most of us are very naive about how the courts operate. Um, we see a lot of TV shows with the criminal courts, but that's a whole different ballgame from these family courts. And I think we assume that the openness, the records, um, the um, motivations of the judges and the court personnel are kind of pure. And yet we're seeing over and over again some horrible situations that happen to people uh, who are in family courts. And it seems to be, it appears that it's just the opposite. So we have these judicial review committees in most states, most jurisdictions, that don't seem to be doing a whole heck of a lot, and they're not open either. And so that leaves us with one option, which is the citizenry um, taking action and trying to do a recall. But it's always so hard, um, unless you've been hurt by the system, unless you've been involved in the system, well, gosh, I've got a lot of other things I have to do. Why would I care about this? Um, are the people who are going for these recalls solely people who have been hurt by these these family court systems? Or is there a broader understanding and a broader um, audience of people who are realizing that something needs to be done? I would say that many of the original supporters of the recall are those who have been harmed from the system itself. However, there is definitely a growing um, base of supporters um, based upon the sort of public awareness and messaging and media campaigns surrounding the recall. Most importantly is getting the story and the information out there and um, showing the public that what is going on inside of these facilities and what is what is being done by the specific actors such as the judges who are being recalled is for from what their initial impressions may be and is is definitely differing from what the law dictates. Um, one other interesting thing about the Contra Costa Superior Court itself and some investigations that have been done into the court operations is that the court is not operating efficiently at all according to um, standards for technology and equipment that's being used. Um, add to that the fact that these courtrooms are actually wired for electronic recording and the court itself has uh, has um, demanded and has preferred to not use it. So we've got a bunch of courtrooms that can all audio record and would not actually need to have court transcriptionists sitting there taking notes on a computer as to what's being said in the court proceedings. Um, that's a huge cost savings right there, audio recording in the courtroom. And all the courtrooms in Contra Costa, from what I understand, are most or all are wired for it. And it's not being used. But they don't and use that's it. wasteful. It's wired for it, but they won't don't use it. That's correct. That seems to be much more efficient. I mean in this day of technology, I mean it would be pennies to reproduce that audio and make it available to litigants who want to file an appeal, for example. Um, on the other hand, you know, I mean, who among us wants somebody to record our every, wor every word and every action as we go about our daily business? I could kind of empathize a little bit with the judges. Um, it's, it's very 
very easy to sit back and see uh, somebody and how they led their day or made a decision or whatever and be very judgmental and go, uh-uh, nope, that's wrong, that's wrong. You know, so I can kind of appreciate their reticence to have everything recorded. On the other hand, in this day and age, you know, none of us really has that level of privacy except apparently in the courts. That's correct. And I think being so close to Silicon Valley and being close to and even within a very progressive, uh, technologically progressive environment, most employees, um, most workers are monitored by a technology in their workplaces. So it really wouldn't be much different um, to expect the same of a judge, especially um, somebody with so much education and training um, that's so capable of making decisions uh, and applying rule of law in, a, in an equitable and fair way. Well, and getting back to the whole idea of accountability, you can't sue a judge. You can't sue a guardian ad litem. You can't sue these people for the decisions that they make, even if they're wrong and even if they're mean-spirited, even if they were – you can't sue them. But my understanding is, is that if they violate the ADA, they can be sued. And so, you know, maybe that's an approach um, to some of this stuff. In the article that I read that you wrote, um, you ended it by saying, can we reclaim our constitutionally protected rights? What are those rights and can we reclaim them? Is this the way we do it with the recall? I would say that the recall should send a very clear message to the community and to the um, Superior Court as well as the legal community that people are sick of the system that we have in place and the lack of oversight and the public is aware that there are no no real um, efficient or viable oversight structures in place. And this is not what was intended by the Founding Fathers of America. This is not what was, um, although the Founding Fathers and um, earlier presidents had warned some time ago that if, if the judicial branch was allowed more power or to to take over, shall we say, usurp some of the power of the other um, the other branches of government, that we would find ourselves in the very predicament that we are in today with um, the sort of, shall we say, lawless, shall we say, unusual, maladaptive, strange, or just types of uh, outcomes and, and society that um, people not only don't expect but but are surprised by. Yeah. I think that's what I hear mostly from people. Um, you know, the people who are – I've had people say, well, why doesn't she just take him to court? They'll make him do whatever. And I think, are you kidding me? <laughs> are you kidding me? How naive are you? I think that we, if we have not been involved with this with a friend or relative or ourselves, we do tend to have this idealized notion that courts are all about justice and fairness. And yet when you, you know, pull back the curtains um, and, and look at what's going on there, it can seem to be almost anything except fairness and justice. 
And if it happens, it's kind of coincidental. And again, I try to make sure that I don't paint everyone with the same brush because I'm sure there are very honorable judges. There are very good judges in my county, in, in King County, Washington. We have some wonderful judges who deal with domestic violence and things like that in a very knowledgeable and uh, just way. However, I see enough uh, from neighboring counties and I see things from around the country where I go, wow, wow, I can't believe that's happening. What can the average citizen do? You're involved in this, and you are, you know, are, are making this at least your avocation, if not your vocation. But what can the average person do about this kind of thing, about this uh, unfairness and lack of oversight, lack of accountability, lack of openness in the court system? What, what can we do if we're just ordinary, everyday citizens? I would say to educate oneself on what's going on in the, the system around you, in the court system, and educate yourself as to the effects of that system on your community and whether that system is serving your community and whether that system is serving the people in your community around you if you have no case or if you don't have any actual experience in it. It's just simply a good question to ask. Does this system serve the community? Does it serve the interests of the people, the community, and their families? You know, I just filled out my ballot for the election, and there must have been nine judges that I was going that I I had on my ballot to vote for, none of whom was running with any opposition. And I looked at that, and I like to think of myself as fairly well informed, but I looked at those names and I thought, what do I know about any one of these people? I know nothing. I know nothing. And so, keeping informed, you know, I, that's a really good thing, and it speaks to me right now. Because I knew nothing about these judges that are on the ballot, and I should. I should. I should know just as much about them as I do any of the candidates that I vote for. So thank you for the work you do. Thank you for coming on the show and and sharing it with us and, and reminding us that even if we're not the ones walking into court, we still have an obligation to know what's going on there. What's, what's next for you, Christy? I would say to continue to support the efforts of the citizens in providing the monitoring and oversight of the systems and of the systems that are working within the communities we live in and being aware of those systems on our friends, on our neighbors, on our families, on the people around us, because it really just starts with the awareness of what's going on and, and how those systems are operating and how they're affecting those, those of us in the community or those of us around us. Christy Karkanen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I feel like we just barely scraped the surface of these issues, but thank you for talking with us and sharing what's happening in Contra Costa County Superior Court. I hope you can join us again uh, later and keep us informed of your work that you're doing. And thank you for listening to Three Women, Three Ways. Join us again next week for more topics that kind of scrape the surface of what we uh, seem to be doing in, in our world. Thank you for listening. Join us next week. 